This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 107, October the 8th, 1985. Today I'm going to begin with a book that is of very little importance, but uh, it has a couple of items that I'd like to pass on. It is John Neff's A Search for Civilization, published in 1962. One of the items in this book which I found interesting was one concerning Albert Michelson, one of the greatest of American scientists. Michelson was born in Murphy's, which is five miles from Vallecito. His uh, home is still there, that is, his childhood home, and a public school is named after him. According to Neff, and I quote, an eminent physicist, the late Albert Michelson, had in him, like all great scientists, something of the artistic temperament without which scientific originality would dry up. Once at a convention of scientists, he is said to have become exasperated by the pleas of his colleagues to organize group inquiries in scientific research. Rising, he told the astonished assembly, gentlemen, I have a more constructive suggestion to make. I suggest we appoint a committee of 100 to write the great American poem, unquote. I share Michelson's opinion of committee work. I think all too much intelligence is smothered by committee meetings. Another item cited by Neff is this. I cannot say of what uh, importance it is, but it tickled me. I quote, The nature of man's legitimate desires is continually changing. In Elizabethan England, for example, almost everyone seems to have consumed alcoholic beverages in quantities that are now confined to a small minority of the population. A passage in Othello suggests Elizabethans thought the drinking powers of Englishmen exceeded those of foreigners. Iago shouts, some wine, ho, and sings a drinking song. For heaven an excellent song, says Cassio, his lieutenant. I learned it in England, where indeed they are most potent in potting. Your Dane, your German, and your swag-bellied Hollander are nothing to your English. He drinks you with facility, your Dane dead drunk. He sweats not to overthrow your Almain. He gives your Hollander a vomit ere the next pottle can be filled. The statistics with which we moderns are deluged show that this was no idle boast. At the end of the 17th century, Gregory King, one of the early statisticians estimated that in England almost a sixth of the national income was spent on alcoholic drink in various forms, as compared with about a ninth in France and about a tenth in Holland. The expenditure per head on drink in England was about twice as great as in France and much greater than in Holland. The beer and ale consumed per capita was at least four times what it is in modern England perhaps 20 times or more what it is in the United States. When Shakespeare put those lines in Iago's mouth, the real income of the English worker was probably somewhat less than in King's day, almost a hundred years afterwards. 
but the per capita consumption of light alcoholic drinks was probably greater. The Elizabethans were not only capable of wonderful feats and drinking bouts. Beer came to form after bread, the chief element in the diet of the common man. He consumed as much with a meal as many an American ordinarily does in a month, unquote. A book I read just a few days ago was a biography of Jules Verne, published in 1976 and written by his grandson, Jean-Jules Verne. Verne, of course, was a remarkable writer. I enjoyed his books very, very much as a boy. Certainly, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Michael Strogoff, the mysterious island, the uh, journey to the center of the earth, from the earth to the moon, and much, much more. Verne was a very interesting figure. He was something of a deist, anti-socialist, but far more socialistic than he realized. He became reconciled to the Catholic Church in his old age and on his deathbed was very appreciative and grateful for the daily visits of the local priest. When he was a young man, he went to England on a visit. Now, at that time the early years of Victoria, the Victorian era had indeed well begun, but our opinion of Victorianism is dramatically wrong. Queen Victoria maintained the facade of uh, strict morality. I'm not implying that she was immoral, but she carefully uh, made sure that all public appearances stressed all the right things. Personally, she had very little concern about the faith. She was an early modernist. She uh, privately liked uh, some body humor, but publicly she was rescuing the uh, very battered image of the uh, monarchy that uh, she had inherited. The Victorian era, moreover, was also the great era of pornography. London was the pornography center of the world. On top of that, although people had the idea that the English were very prim and pop proper, this was a facade. It fooled other Europeans and Americans. Thus, when... Uh, Verne went to England as a young man. He was uh, astonished at the freedom of speech and manners, uh, and the English seemed to be much less inhibited to him than the French, something he did not expect. Then uh, he, as an associate, went to the beach. This was in Scotland. He saw uh, mobile huts 
where people undressed and the men bathing about 30 feet from the women. And Jacques told uh, Jules, that's English prudery for you. Separation of that sort doesn't happen in France. It's a great pity, I agree, answered Jonathan, but when in Rome, so they entered their huts on wheels. They found no bathing suit there, although the proprietor of the beach had provided them with the huts. So they looked out and suddenly noticed one of the men emerging from the water slowly and gracefully stark naked. They were startled and shocked. Well, uh, they were really amazed because they hadn't expected this. This was commonplace in England in those days. So finally they decided they'd better go in. So they ran for the water, but when they were through, after understandable hesitations as to how to return to their cabins, this is Verne's narrative, in such a primitive state, they waded out backwards, braving the laughter of the girls at their modesty and their hasty retreat. <laughs> well, from one extreme, the Victorians swung to the other, ankle-length bathing suits. It was all fashion. It wasn't uh, prudery. It wasn't uh, modesty or anything like that. Now, on to one more item in uh, this Verne book before we uh, go on to something else. One of the things that uh, is so amazing about Verne is the scientific accuracy of his books. For example, in his Voyage to the Moon, or From the Earth to the Moon, the space vehicle was the same weight and height as that used 100 years later in the Apollo 9 moon expedition, and it was launched from the same place, Florida. Moreover, the splashdown was only two and a half miles from the point Verne pinpointed in his book. One of the things that pleased me, too, because... I share that feeling. He loved being a writer. And he once said, What a fine profession I have. I'm a free man. I get a pencil and some white paper, go off by myself, and there I am, sitting on the slopes of Popocatapetl uh, or paddling in Lake Titicaca. He hadn't exactly filled his coffers with gold. He had at least managed to support his family and money for its own sake held no interest for him. Yet this undoubted success seemed to have a taste of failure about it, for it lacked the one thing that Verne desired more than any other, the esteem of his fellow writers. The one real sadness in Verne's life, though, was his son. He and his wife had one child, and 
Michelle was a spoiled and as a result a difficult child. In fact, it's incredible to read. His tantrums, we are told, frequently disturbed his father's work. One day, Vern came striding out of his study with a face like thunder to ask what all the row was about. Honorine, his wife, undaunted, replied that Michael wanted the clock. Give him the clock, then, Vern ex exclaimed, if that will shut him up. The child encountered no resistance. His every caprice was tolerated, if not encouraged. Uh, for example, once on a walk, I'll quote, he was out walking with Honorine and deliberately dropped his little, this was the son, walking stick down the first coal hole he saw. Tantrums to get it back. Honorine rang the bell and asked the people in the house to have it fetched. Repossessed of his little toy and asked to behave himself, he did exactly the same thing at the very next coal hole. Instead of spanking him as he deserved, Honorine burst into laughter. How could she stand up to such a charming little monster who was wont to kneel and gaze at her, saying, How lovely you are, mummy. Well, he grew up to be a monster. His own son, the author of this book, says he was a charming monster, but a monster. Only in Vern's old age did his son show a little bit of common sense and settle down. But until that time, he was a monster who caused his father no end of grief. The scripture is right. Spare the rod and spoil the child. Another interesting work that I read recently was Volume 2 of the Renaissance and Reformation Movements, and Volume 2 is The Reformation by Louis W. Spitz, S-P-I-T-Z, of Stanford University. Again, an older work. Uh, first published in 1971. The interesting fact to me, which I think too seldom is appreciated or too seldom stressed, is the poverty of the medieval priest. Now, this had important consequences. The uh, priests, especially in rural areas, says Spitz, were wretchedly provided for. The income from many prebends was so small that a cleric either held several of them, which involved him in the abuse of plurality of incomes, or lived in poverty. Poverty as great as any monks. Vicars of parishes attached to monasteries had extraordinarily small incomes. In Scotland, over half the vicars were extremely poor. In Flanders, the priests were so poorly paid that many had to work at other jobs. The Bishop of Claremont reported to the Council of Trent in 1546 that of 800 parishes in his diocese, only 60 had regular parish priests, and the rest were cared for by vicars whose income amounted to a mere 10 or 12 guldens a year. There's much more about this, but 
The important fact that Spitz calls attention to is that the church declined because the funds were being channeled to the higher clergy and to building cathedrals and buildings and so on. As a result, the church on the level of the people was in an abysmal condition. It was barely able to survive. The priests lacked education. No one showed any concern for them. They were being overly taxed by the bishops over them so that everything was being sucked out of the local church for the benefit of the higher clergy. And it was this fact which, as much as any other, contributed to the Reformation because it left the local people with nothing at all. Few churches functioning and a clergy that was bitter and resentful. As a matter of fact, very few people are aware of the fact that throughout the Middle Ages, and you can find evidence of this, for example, in a collection translated by Bernard McGinn, Apocalyptic Spirituality, Treatises and Letters of Lactantius, Adsov, Montier and Joachim Fiora, the Franciscan Spirituals, Savonarola, and so on. These local priests, and sometimes monks as well, commonly wrote about the popes as antichrist. This was not an idea invented by the Reformation. It was one of the most common themes of medieval spirituality and medieval protests. And a very large amount of it, much of it, of course, anonymous, came from priests. Priests who often had an intensely earnest sense of vocation, but were being ground down by a system of church finances that drained everything from the local church. This is a very important aspect of medieval history which we commonly neglect. A good deal of the rhetoric of the Reformation was totally unoriginal. It simply echoed much of what had been said for a long, long time. A great deal more of interest in uh, Spitz's book, but that point in particular I felt was important to pass on. Now on to another work, Timothy Matterer, M-A-T-E-R-E-R, -E -E Vortex, Pound, Eliot, and Lewis, dealing with three writers of considerable influence in the early part of the century. And uh, they are Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, and Wyndham Lewis who are called the men of 1914 by some because then they published Vortex, a periodical to set forth their ideas. 
Pound, throughout his life, proclaimed the end of the Christian era, and of course, as we know, he sought the new era through fascism. Pound was a radical cynic concerning a great many things, including marriage as well. However, uh, this book, which is most favorable to these men, uh, and by and large I am not, does make this point with regard to them, that Vortex and these writers at the beginning and sometimes during a good deal of their career were content to shock rather than to inform the public. This too often has been the basic theme of modern art. And one of their periodicals stated their slogan as making no compromise with the public taste. And they held the shared theme that the artist must keep himself above the herd. So, at one and the same time, these men despised the people and yet also insisted that uh, the people bow down and acknowledge their greatness. Well, on to another old book. This one... Maurice Collis, C-O-L-L-I-S, Cortez and Montezuma, first published in 1954 and reprinted as late as 1972. The purpose of the book, very simply, is to understand Cortez and Montezuma and why they did what they did. Because to him, the important thing is to know why Montezuma did not resist. Why Cortez went ahead in such confidence. The book, as a result, is most interesting. Of course, most of us have read more than once that uh, the Aztecs and Montezuma were expecting the return of one of their gods. They were expecting him to return from the east to be white and to have a beard. Cortez met all the qualifications. According to their forecasts, he was to arrive on a particular day, and he did. The exact day, month, and year. As a result, they kept trying to persuade this angry God because they were fearful of his return to leave. And they were having uh, problems because they did not dare strike out at the god. But Cortez was not leaving. 
And the consequence is that Montezuma felt helpless in the face of a god who was ready to give him everything that he wanted, hoping to bribe him to leave. We have a graphic account in this book of the human sacrifice by the thousands which marked the culture of Mexico. Naturally, the other races of Indians were not very favorable to the Aztecs since they were usually the victims. The uh, landing of Cortez thus was a traumatic affair for these peoples. Their God had returned as had been predicted and he was angry. As a matter of fact, they had watchers waiting, expecting him to land. As Collis says, sure enough, in the year one read, the dreaded visitants appeared. More extraordinary still, Cortez landed on the very day of that year when he was expected to land. According to magical astrological calculations, the indication was that Quetzalcoatl would land on his personal name day, a nine-wind day. Cortez, having reached San Juan de Ulua on Holy Thursday, April 21st, 1519, landed the next day, and that day was a nine-wind day. His appearance, white complexion, black beard, was as anticipated. Moreover, he was wearing a hat resembling the hat which Quetzalcoatl was reputed to wear, and had on a black suit since it was Good Friday, a further coincidence. For in the pictures and the magical books, Quetzalcoatl's clothes were painted black. As a result, Montezuma and the Aztecs were not able to resist. In fact, as Kala says of Montezuma, he could not resist without endangering the universe. A war among the gods would be a total ruin. So the stability of the universe and the continuation of history depended on pacifying Cortez, this god. Very remarkable, and there's much, much more than I have indicated on that prophetic uh, character. On to another work now, again out of print, which I read just this past week, Sidney Zion. Read all about it, The Collections of a Maverick Reporter. This was published in 1982. Sidney Zion is very much a liberal, has a degree in law as well as being a reporter, is one of the uh, superior reporters in the media. He has a number of very, very uh, telling chapters on a number of things, dealing with the hypocrisy of the left, uh, which he has no hesitation to uh, describe, and of liberals. Moreover, 
He goes after Kennedy, Teddy Kennedy, McGovern, and uh, sees McGovern and his reforms of the party as a fraud. I'd like to share with you just a little bit about his comments on the U.S. Supreme Court. He has no use for the uh, Burger Court, which he views as fundamentally a history of a statist majority at war with the Bill of Rights. Then, as he uh, analyzes the book, The Brethren, about the Supreme Court, he sees it, of course, as the work of law clerks talking about their superiors. And he says, in that sense, law clerks as informants are no different from mafiosi as rats. You need them, you use them, but you don't have to like them. The difference is that we could have re respected the clerks if they did the deed in defense of the Constitution. Maybe some did. But if you want anonymity, you can't have it both ways. Then, skipping over, he says, it came down to character, and the clerks come up short. No wonder. Most of them, probably all of them, were editors of law reviews at the top schools in the country. As character builders, law reviews rank a cut above high-class bordellos. Take the cream, put them in the Supreme Court, and you end up with elitists who are not only impressed with their own importance, but quite anxious to impress the important with the inferiority of their employers. End of quote. Another very important book, which is in print, having been published this year, is by Myron Dolot, D as in Denver, O-L-O-T, Execution by Hunger, The Hidden Holocaust, published by W.W. W. Norton for 1695. This is an account of the forest famine and the collectivization under Stalin. It really begins with the Russian Revolution, but it concludes with the end of the famine in the Ukraine, a deliberately created famine, a famine with one purpose in mind, to destroy the Ukraine. It's a grim account. And in these days of detente, it is important to read accounts like this because so many of the men at the top got their start as very young men in the course of these events. It's much too grim to spend time going into. It deals with mass death cannibalism, and the horrors of an enforced, state-created famine. It is interesting that as far back as the 20s and the 30s, the Communist Party line was not to take the responsibility for things, but to say the Jews did it. Another interesting book 
published of late, is Peter Drucker's Innovation and Entrepreneurship Practice and Principles, published in 1985 by Harper and Row. I'm not going to take time to go into this, except to call attention to it as a very important work on the nature of entrepreneurship. I don't agree with some of Drucker's economic ideas, but it's still a good book. He's a stimulating writer. However, just perhaps one or two items. In dealing with Japan, he says, and I quote, Surely one secret of the Japanese is their officially encouraged tax evasion on capital formation. Legally, a Japanese adult is allowed one medium-sized savings account, the interest on which is tax-exempt. Actually, Japan has five times as much as many such accounts as there are people in the country, children and minors included. This is, of course, a scandal against which newspapers and politicians rail regularly. But the Japanese are very careful not to do anything to stop the abuse. As a result, they have the world's highest rate of capital formation. This may be considered too circuitous a way to escape the dilemma of modern society. The conflict between the need for capital formation at a high rate and the popular condemnation of interest and dividends as unearned income and capitalist, if not sinful and wicked. But one way or another, any country that wants to remain competitive in an entrepreneurial era will have to develop tax policies which do what the Japanese do by means of semi-official hypocrisy and courage capital formation." Unquote. So, when you analyze the success in Japan of the economy, you have to take this factor into account. It's a very important one. Good many other things of uh, merit in this book, including his comments about creative destruction, how businesses need to scrap some of their past experience, how they need to work to develop new things, new ideas. Another book, not currently in print, published in 1969 by George Boas, Vox Populi, Essays in the History of an Idea. One of the chapters is Who Are the People? A very interesting uh, point, because throughout history, the concept of the people has changed. In the Soviet Union, for example, the people really are the Communist Party. Everyone else is a non-person, non-people, and is there to be used and exploited. In our country, we are rapidly developing the idea that the poor are the people. But if you are rich or if you are a Christian, you're not one of the people. So the rich and the Christians become anti-people. 
I'm not saying the rich and the Christians are one and the same, by the way. But because those who define the people today like neither capitalism nor Christianity, anyone who fits either category is a non-person, anti-people. This kind of thinking, of course, is vicious and dangerous. The people as the working class, that type of thinking leads straight into Marxism. Another fairly recent book is Paul F. Baller, B as in boy, O-L-L-E-R, Jr., Presidential Campaigns, published for 1695 by the Oxford University Press in 1984. It deals with the shenanigans in all the uh, presidential elections from the beginning. The shenanigans from the very first in Lincoln's convention and so on. Uh, there's a lot of interesting material here. The point of view of Baller, of course, is anything but uh, sound. But uh, this I thought was amusing because it indicates how pietism infected even uh, a president. Harrison's, I'm quoting, low temperature alienated party workers. Pennsylvania's Matt Quay had managed Harrison's 1888 campaign skillfully, but wasn't sure he wanted to work for the White House iceberg again. When Harrison told him that God put him where he was, Quay snapped, let God re-elect you then, and stomped out of the White House, unquote. <laughs> well... <laughs> That was a mistake on Harrison's part. An interesting fact is, those of you who recall how one periodical in 1964 had a lot of psychiatrists say that uh, Goldwater was a mentally sick man. This was not uh, new. It was used against William Jennings Brian. It was also used against uh, Theodore Roosevelt. So, <laughs> psychiatrists have been prone to such uh, stupidity from way back. It's an interesting book, I, I must say, but uh, Baller's perspective sometimes gets a bit irritating. One thing that I thought uh, Bowler just mentioned in passing, and someone could write a good book on it. This is with regard to the Hoover uh, Roosevelt election. I quote, Hoover, in nine major addresses, insisted that the Depression grew out of World War I 
and originated abroad and not at home, as FDR maintained, and that the measures he had taken had prevented total collapse. Let no man say it could not have been worse, he said. Unquote. Very telling point, but people were not ready to face up to reality then. Interesting, too, is the fact that Hoover was the last president to write his own speeches. Here's another interesting item. In a speech in Pittsburgh on October 19, 1932, this was when he was running against Hoover and before he was elected, Roosevelt had called for reduced federal spending, but when his New Deal programs produced heavy spending, the Republicans charged he had betrayed his Pittsburgh promises. Roosevelt was bothered by the charge and at the beginning of his 1936 campaign told speechwriter Judge Rosenman, I am going to make the first major campaign speech in Pittsburgh at the ballpark in exactly the same spot I made that 1932 Pittsburgh speech. And in the speech I want to explain my 1932 statement. See whether you can prepare a draft giving a good and convincing explanation of it. So Rosenman got out a copy of the 1932 address, read it carefully, went to see Roosevelt, and told him that only one kind of explanation was possible. Fine, said Roosevelt, a bit surprised but pleased all the same. What sort of explanation would you make? Mr. President, said Rosenman, the only thing you can say about that 1932 speech is to deny categorically that you ever made it. Unquote. Well, a uh, great deal more like this. Uh, perhaps this one, too, on uh, presidential hypocrisy. This has to do with something a lot of conservatives love to cite with regard to Teddy Roosevelt as proof of how good he was and the kind of president we should have. And actually, the incident represented a bit of uh, dishonesty and hypocrisy on Teddy Roosevelt's part. On May 18, Ion Perdicaris, a wealthy American-born citizen residing in Morocco, was kidnapped by a bandit named Raisuli and held for ransom. President Roosevelt at once rushed water, warships to Moroccan waters, and arranged for Secretary of State John Hay to send a dramatic message to the American Consul General in Tangier. This government wants Perdicaris alive or Rasuli dead. By this time, the Moroccan government had secured Perdicaris' release, and it turned out he was registered in Athens as a Greek subject. But T.R. went ahead anyway, and when the words Perdicaris alive or Rasuli dead were read to the Republican convention meeting in Chicago, they roused the delegates to a high pitch of excitement. It was magnificent, magnificent, cried New York Senator Chauncey M. Depew. For a time, the Republicans had a rousing slogan, Perdicaris alive or Rasuli dead. When the 
furor died down. Hay wrote amusedly in his diary, It is curious how a concise impropriety hits the public. Well, now on to one more book. This uh, by Victoria Secunda, entitled By Youth Possessed, The Denial of Age in America, 1595, published by Bob's Merrill in 1984. It isn't a particularly outstanding book, but uh, there are some good points that she does make. She comments about our age that what we love is youth, not children. With regard to advertising, as a woman writer, she has some <laughs> amusing and uh, plain-spoken statements. She says, with regard to uh, advertising that uh, features uh, women scantily or not at all clad. And I quote, according to a study published in the Journal of Advertising Research, nudes in ads do not enhance brand recall as much as ads with forests and mountains. The authors wrote, should a nude female be used in advertisements directed toward men? When brand recall is the objective, the data presented here indicates no. While an illustration of a nude female may gain the interest and attention of a viewer, an advertisement depicting a non-sexual scene appears to be more effective in obtaining brand recall. All the same in the 1970s, the use of attractive models increased, while the view of women in traditional roles decreased. In another role, it was a study. In another study, it was found that the use of decorative female models made the difference between noticing an ad in which the illustration gets the attention of the male reader and not studying it at all. The result confirms that putting an attractive or sexy female in an ad to adorn the product is an effective attention-getting device. This does not mean, however that the presence of decorative models will lead to the reading of the ad's body copy, unquote. <laughs> well, I doubt that that has stopped advertising men. It just may be that they like to work with uh, the female models. On to another item from the Express News San Antonio earlier this year. If you think you've been kicked around by the Internal Revenue Service, talk to the folks at uh, Roman Hayes Company. The trouble started a couple of years ago when the Philadelphia-based chemical company sent the IRS a 4,400, excuse me, a $4,488,112.88 for payroll taxes, but which the IRS calculated was a dime short. 
For that 10 cent transgression, the IRS assessed the company a $46,806.37 penalty. Over the next few months, the company had a team of accountants working full time in an effort to bring the IRS to its senses. Finally, without explanation or apology, the tax agency dropped the penalty. Even so, Roman Hayes' troubles were just beginning. A month after settling the ten-cent case, the company received a letter from the IRS saying that it had a tax credit of four million five hundred and seventy thousand four hundred and sixty-two dollars for overpayment of corporate income taxes. It also said that two a million three hundred thousand of the credit had been seized to satisfy the company's overdue employee withholding tax payment. Company officials were flabbergasted. They were not due any tax refund, and they had promptly paid the withholding tax. Then came the shocker. The IRS notified Roman Hayes that it had taken care of the matter after deducting a late payment penalty for the payroll tax by depositing $32,595.97 in the company's bank account. The company immediately returned the $32,595.97, only to be informed by the IRS that the firm might be in big trouble for having had the money in its possession. Everything is quiet now. This was March the 26th, so it is some time ago. As company officials anxiously await the next word from the faceless bureaucrats of the Philadelphia IRS office. In Washington, IRS Commissioner Roscoe Egger, Jr. blames these and dozens of other horror stories cropping up in the Philadelphia area on a new computer and software. To us, it sounds more like a sloven bureaucracy completely out of control. Well, our time is almost over. I've enjoyed this session with you. When I travel, as some of you have found out by picking up my briefcase, when uh, I am met at the airport, I have a briefcase full of books which I read on the planes and in my hotel room because I don't like to waste any time. And, of course, I am reading and studying when I'm not writing when I'm here at home. I enjoy sharing these uh, choice little bits of my reading with you. And if I haven't commented on some suggestion of yours, it's because I have somewhere or other commented on that, and I don't want to repeat myself, or I don't think I know enough about the subject, or at the moment I'm not interested in it because I've talked enough about it with somebody or other. At any rate, thank you for your suggestions, and thanks for listening. <laughs>